Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 2, Episode 18 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. This was the second last episode of the series. We will be taking a break of about six or seven weeks after our next episode, which will be a review of the season. Plenty of exciting plans for the next series, so we're already looking forward to that and we hope you are too. But in the meantime, we still have this episode and one more before season two comes to a close. I've included the usual comprehensive running order in the show notes of all the topics we considered in this episode. But just to give you that usual teaser, in this episode we looked at each of the six teams in Ligan who could potentially find themselves in the relegation playoff spot come the end of Sunday night. We looked in particular at key players who could potentially make the difference for their teams. We looked at the three relegated sides from Serie A, Benevento, Crotone and Parma and discussed which of those three sides might be best suited to make an immediate return to Italy's top flight. Elsewhere, we looked at the current health of Atletico Madrid ahead of their game against Valladolid on the final day of the season. Atletico, of course, have their sights on a second La Liga title in the space of seven years. And in Germany, we looked at Werder Bremen's belated and untimely decision to sack Florian Kohfeldt with just one game to go and the club's Bundesliga status in extreme doubt. Stay tuned for insight into all of those topics and more. This episode is, of course, produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio, and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit freelancefootballops.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. On now with the episode. Thank you, as always, for your continued support. Enjoy. This is actually the penultimate episode of season two. We'll do tonight's episode and then we'll do a final episode of season two in a fortnight's time. That will be a review of the seasons in each of the four countries we predominantly cover. Some really good content across the season for us to look back on. We'll then take a break of sorts and we'll be back late July or early August with Owen Brown and Joe Donoghue from Scouted Football joining us to look at some of this season's exciting young players and some players to look out for in the season, which will just be about to start. That will be next season. Really looking forward to that. But in the meantime, guys, plenty to discuss, plenty to look forward to a really juicy final weekend in all of the leagues we cover in one way or another. Michael Jones, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. There's some 
clearly some really exciting stuff happening here at the moment so can't wait to crack on with that and um i guess since it's traditional introductories when we have a new haircut we talk about it i'll just mention mine as well which i subjected you both to a little twirl uh, yeah michael we enjoyed that didn't we we enjoyed that it was lovely and he's looking fantastic not that you the listener can see we've not quite moved into the realm of video podcasts on spotify and whatnot but if if you could see michael you would probably be similarly taken aback by his his beauty and his new haircut rudy barlow sitting there feeling like he's being left out rudy you're looking fantastic as well how are you I'm not too bad, yeah. I feel like I've lost the USP as the one with the bizarre haircut now. So, um, I, I, yeah, I'm feeling a little bit put out. I need to need to do something radical for, for next fortnight. Well, I look forward to that, Varlo, because if you are to outdo Michael Jones, then you'll have to do something quite spectacular. I think it's probably best to start with Franz. Yeah, absolutely. We're all set for a thrilling final day in Liga with the title race the skirmish for the final Champions League spot and the battle to avoid relegation all going down to the wire. Plenty of focus will be on Lille's bid to secure a first league and title since 2011 and Monaco's attempt to condemn Lyon to a second consecutive season without Champions League football. However, at the other end of the table, as many as six teams could find themselves in the relegation playoff spot at the end of Sunday night. That cluster of sides at risk of potentially going down includes your beloved Strasbourg, who will host relegation battlers Lorient in a tantalising tie at the Menau. How are the nerves, Ali? The nerves are fine just now. I'm just going to work through each of the teams who could potentially find themselves in that relegation playoff spot come the end of Sunday night's fixtures. We could have... Any one of six teams, as you quite rightly point out, Michael, in that position come the end of those games. Starting with Lance in 13th, they're currently on 42 points, minus seven goal difference. And I'm going to say the goal difference for each team because it will, if there is a tie, ultimately come down to goal difference. So I'm going to give the goal difference for each team. Minus seven for Lance. Coached by David Guion, the outgoing David Guion, who I've been a big fan of. Um, and they host Bordeaux on the final day of the season. Now, just two wins in the last 16 games for Hans, but by virtue of their goal difference and the dynamic of the, the fixture list for the final day, I think they should just about be safe. But having said that, there are a lot of concerns for next season, even if they do stay up, they have really struggled in 2021. Bull Idea, the excellent young striker, 24 years of age, we highlighted him earlier in season two. He's only scored four goals in 2021, and that mirrors Clance's struggles more generally. Um, they had positive results in December and January, but post-January and Prior to December, they've been really, really poor. So those two months really are what will ultimately, I think, keep plans up going forward with a new coach. There does need to be drastic improvement, but probably and most likely they'll be safe from that relegation playoff spot. Bordeaux in 14th, we spoke about them recently on the podcast, their problems on and off the park. They're sitting on 42 points as well. Goal difference minus 15, which could perhaps be cause for 
concern, coached, of course, by Jean-Louis Gassi. They travel to Reims, as I noted, been speaking about Reims, on the last day of the season. So that one could be interesting. I'd probably say that that most likely finishes in a draw, and a draw would be enough for both teams. But having said that, maybe both teams do play for the draw. But let's let's just let's just say that the integrity of both sides is impeccable and they don't both play for a draw. Regardless, there are huge issues on and off the park at Bordeaux, as we highlighted before. They did manage another impressive win at home to follow up that win over Rennes. Uh, they won 3-0 against Lens. The highly regarded Lens under Funk is. But even if they do stay up this season, there is so much to do on and off the park, as is the case with Lens going forward next season. And that's not even considering for the fact that administratively, the DNCG, the regulatory body in France, which ensures that clubs keep their finances in order, may well send Bordeaux all the way down the French league hierarchy because of these quite dreadful financial problems. Just as well, Hatem Ben Arfa doesn't look interested these days after a really positive start to the season. He was playing well and Bordeaux were playing well, but he just looks uninterested. And, and Bordeaux, had Hatem Ben Arfa been playing to the level that we know he can play when he's interested, Bordeaux may well have been really quite clear of this relegation battle. But alas, Hatem Ben Arfa hasn't been interested. And so Bordeaux indirectly have struggled. John Michel Seri as well, so good at Nice under Favre, was linked, I think, with Barcelona. He has looked really disappointing this season. So that probably is another cause for concern. It's a cause for quite negative reflection. On to Strasbourg, my beloved Strasbourg. They're sitting in 15th there on 41 points with a goal difference of minus nine. That goal difference could come in really quite handy for them. Coached by Thierry Rolli, who may well be leaving at the end of the season. Some people say he's going, some people saying he's undecided if he's going, but it looks really quite likely that he will actually be leaving at the end of the season. I'm not quite sure what the post Laurie era looks like at Strasbourg, but Laurie has been an excellent coach for, for Strasbourg. They host Lyon in that really quite juicy battle between two relegation strugglers. That promises to be a cracking game. Strasbourg as well, they had a really slow start to the season. They didn't climb out of the relegation places until the 6th of December. But having said that, I'm still confident that that they can do the necessary on Sunday night and stay up. Just a word as well for Ludovic as York. What a player. 16 goals, fourth top scorer in the league, third for non-penalty XG. He has been absolutely brilliant for Strasbourg. And if Strasbourg are to go down, I would be really surprised if they could somehow keep a hold of a York. He's one of those players that belongs in Liga and are in one of the top five leagues. An excellent player and one I've thoroughly enjoyed watching that win last weekend a 2-0 win away at Nice was absolutely massive I've made a helpful note there to myself just to say come on the boys and I think that probably sums it up good luck to Strasbourg on Sunday not that we wanted to sound like a football phone in but I had to just get that one in there <laughs> Barlow's smirking but it's, it, it was needed Barlow it was needed um, I could be the difference between Strasbourg staying up and going down <laughs> moving swiftly on to Brest sitting in 16th What's happened to Brest? 41 points, minus 14 goal difference, coached by Olivier 
Dalolio, who has been linked with a move away after a really impressive start of the season, they face PSG at home on the last day of the season. Given that PSG realistically need to win that game to stand any chance of winning the league, I cannot see Brest taking anything from that. Brest started really well, found themselves sitting in 11th, fairly comfortable actually at the end of December, but it's just been a really, really poor 2021 for them. They do play some really attacking and attractive football at times, but they've only won four games in the last 20 in the league. I would just highlight as well, I spoke about Woodford York as a player that you wouldn't want to see drop out of Ligue 1 and potentially maybe attracting interest from, from bigger clubs. Another player in that cluster of teams who could potentially be attracting interest is Roman Fevre, the 22-year-old midfielder who plays predominantly on the left-hand side of that Brest midfield. He's in the 93rd percentile for shot-creating actions across the top five leagues. Uh, he averages 4.77 shot-creating actions per 90. That's phenomenal figures for a player in a relatively struggling team. He's also top in the league for carries into the final third. A huge talent, and you feel like if Brest are to somehow pick up points, because I think they'll need to, I can really see Brest slipping into that playoff spot. You do feel that Fevre will have a key role to play. Just moving on now to Lyon. Lyon sitting 17th, 41 points, minus 18 goal difference, coached by Christophe Pellissier. They've travelled to Strasbourg. I actually can see Lyon going there and getting the win because they know that a point may well not be enough. Could potentially be enough, but I think they go there for the win. They've been really quite impressive at times in the last few weeks going forward, and I can see them perhaps getting a really positive result there. Four defeats, that's all in the last 16 games. Seven wins during that run. They've been inspired by Johan Wiesa, the 24-year-old forward, Armand Oyonte, the 22-year-old winger, and the excellent Nigerian forward, Terry Moffey. He's just 21 years of age. Moffey has scored 14 goals in the league. He is the fourth highest for non-penalty XG, just behind Ludovic York. I do feel like they need at least a point to avoid that playoff. But I think they'll get it. I actually think they could beat Strasbourg. And my prediction actually is that Brest will fall into the relegation playoff spot. And the reason I say that is because the team currently occupying that spot, not in 18, they're on 40 points, a goal difference of minus seven, coached by Antoine Combouari. They're at home to Montpellier, but not have been in stunning form over the last few weeks. Four wins on the bounce have given them hope. Those wins crucially have come against other teams struggling at the wrong end of the table. Strasbourg, Brest, Bordeaux and Dion. The wins have been huge. You do wonder, however, if they are to find themselves still in that playoff spot come the end of Sunday night's fixtures, just how much that will be down to the disastrous spell under Raymond Dominic. I think that could prove to be really quite costly. Just four points taken from an available 21 under him in the league. But still, I think they'll do it. One of the main reasons for that is the excellent recent form of Rondal. Kolumuani. He's 22 years of age, and if it was ever Rondal Kolumuani time, it's this Sunday night at home to Montpellier. I think we'll wrap up our analysis there of the six teams who could all potentially fall into that playoff spot come the end of Sunday night. It's been a whistle-stop tour, but hopefully it's provided some more context to an absolutely riveting battle, particularly in this season of all seasons with the 
the consequences of the COVID pandemic and the collapse of the TV deal, it feels like securing safety, securing your league and status for next season is so, so important. We're going to speak now about Spain and all the latest developments there. We'll be right back. Following our discussion in our previous episode, results didn't actually alter the landscape of the title race in Spain all that much. But it was, of course, all about the journey. A hair-raising Sunday evening in La Liga leaves Atleti top with one game remaining. Can they see it out and have they been the best team in the league, Bow? For my money, yes. I mean, it's a foolish errand to be ruling anything out of this La Liga season because none of these teams have really shown that they they deserve that sort of confidence. But I, I, And I think this weekend was testimony to that. Atleti were playing Osasuna on Sunday night, as you referred to. They hit the woodwork twice, tight offsides, throwing everything at Osasuna. And probably one of their better performances, I have to say, in the league, certainly in 2021. And then in the 70... 78th minute, 75th minute, Ante Budimir scores for Osasuna. And bear in mind, about 10 to 15 minutes previously, Nacho Fernandez has bundled in what would be the winner in Bilbao for Real Madrid. One of the underrated parts for me, actually, of Real Madrid's squad is that they do tend to get the best out of their squad players. And it's harsh to refer to Nacho as a squad player, but he's, he's certainly not ever been first choice for Real Madrid. And I think every sort of season, you do see one or two of those come through. And credit to Zidane, you see Lucas Vasquez, immediately people point to him as the weak point, but quite often or not, he's come up very big for them. This season, Eder Militao has been absolutely fantastic for them in this home straight. And despite the fact that he never showed any real sort of hint of that kind of strength or uh, quality performance. And you do get have a faith sort of in that Real Madrid side that you don't get with Atleti and Barca, that when it comes down to it, they will see it out, they will get the big performance, even if this season perhaps they've not quite deserved that moniker Mm -hmm. or that sort of attribute. Mm -hmm. Previously, certainly based on the past, that's the sort of feeling you do get. And part of the reason for that is that Barcelona, in the most key part of their season, in contrast certainly to Real Madrid, Barcelona in the most key part of their season lost to Granada, Drew of Atleti, Drew of Levante, throwing the lead away twice, and then drew with Celta, or were drawing it with Celta at this point in time, and would go on to lose that game. So it's understandable why you haven't got that confidence in Barcelona. It was looking very grim, and I think for Atleti at any rate, and sort of that sickening sort of feeling of here we go again was probably rising in the stomachs of many colchoneros on Sunday evening as that sort of transpired. And then with eight minutes to go, Renan Lodi steaming down the left, absolutely fires one, hammers one into the corner from the left-hand side. And you, it, it was a very much sort of get the ball and go kind of Milan Champions League final. We can do this kind of, or Liverpool in against Milan in the Champions League final. We can do this sort of mm-hmm. feeling. Mm-hmm. But you weren't quite sure whether they were going to make it because you don't have quite the same confidence in them attacking as you do defending. But perhaps the difference this season is that they do have Luis Suarez and with Osasuna camped in their own box, who does Carrasco find but Luisito? 
key and the sort of frustration with Atleti last season, Alvaro Morata went through one-on-one countless times and just could not convert. And this season, I think the difference has been Luis Suarez's, mm-hmm. and I will caveat this in a minute, but it has been Luis Suarez's sort of killer instinct in the box that has got them to this point in time and I think will get them over the line. My caveat with that is that in any other league year, I don't think any three of these teams would be either close to the title or winning it, certainly not in the last 10 years. But if we look at the season as a whole, between sort of October and January, Atleti did sort of have that sort of feeling of a title winner about them. They were winning games confidently, not necessarily comfortably, but they certainly, they were a solid side and you were convinced about what they were doing and who was going to come up big with them in a way that you can't quite say that Barcelona or Madrid have had this season, even though they've gone on really long unbeaten runs. I think Barcelona made it to 18 games. Real Madrid have been pushing 20 as well. Neither of them have ever given you quite as much of a, a feeling of sort of, yeah, a convincing feeling. It's a very Spanish way of saying it, sort of convencer. But Atleti, yeah, between those sort of few months, they did have that sort of um, sense that they were there to win the title and they were strong enough to do so in the way that the other two didn't and haven't given us. Atleti, it looks like they'll have just enough. And I think what works most in their favour next week is that they have Valladolid, who are somewhat hopeless at the moment. One team that looked dead and buried were Alaves, who, with so many games left to play, were bottom and looking pretty bereft of hope. Javi Calleja has worked with the wonders, but what did that work entail? Excellent pronunciation there, Michael. Um, <laughs> Javi Calleja is a good manager for my money. He's not going to make your defence unbeatable. He's not Cholo Simeone, but he will get your team focusing on their strengths, particularly going forward. He's a proactive manager. I think he, he's he been very sort of rah-rah in the sense that he's been very certain that this team has what it takes, has the quality to get out of the drop zone. And since he arrived on the 5th of April, four wins, three draws, one loss. And when you bear in mind that before that, it was one draw and six losses in their last seven, they did look like they were sort of plummeting towards the second division. But I think that is the value of a proactive manager and someone who believes in, in the sort of capabilities of his own side. A lot of these sort of lower teams in the division, and I'm not talking about Spain, but just generally, there is a conservative approach and sort of a, a want to, to camp in your own half, certainly against the very big teams and say, mm-hmm. yeah, okay, we're going to be solid at the back. If we nick a goal, that will be enough. But I think it can go too far that way. And players, any player at any level, likes to be told that they're good enough to go toe-to-toe with the opposition. And, okay, Alaves are aware that they will still have to do some defending. They will still be sat deep in their own half points. But against the sort of teams that are around them, certainly they've had far more ambition about them. If you look back at their previous managers, the last few, they've had Abelardo in, who did a fantastic job at the time, in all fairness to him. Juan Muniz... Asier Garitano, Pablo Machine this season, then Abelardo again before Calleja came in. And it's been a long time since Alaves have been told that they're actually a good attacking team and that they're good enough to, to go against the likes of Huesca, for example, or Levante and go toe-to-toe with them. So fair play to Calleja, who I think is, is probably underrated by a few, but he's done a, a tremendous job of getting them out of it. 
On the other hand, despite a few late results and some signs of life, La Liga has ultimately lost Ibar as feared. Just to reiterate, this team comes from a town of about 27,000 and plays in a ground that holds about 8,000. Ibar have spent seven years in La Liga and defied the expectations every season. A team so small, they almost weren't allowed in due to their budget, despite being in the black. What will their La Liga legacy be, Barlow? I think it's really profound that this Ibar side have gone down in the same year that those big clubs tried to form the Super League. Ibar is, it's a miraculous story. It's a sort of moral story, having them in La Liga, a moral tale. No matter how small you are, no matter how how sort of uh, humble your team is, or and I think for as a wider thing in life, if you do things right, if you work hard, and if you stick to your sort of, values without getting caught up certainly in football terms in the callous spending and the sort of fast fashion style of business in football you -hmm. can still find success and there's a reward for you there if you if you do those things right and to lose them for me I think it's immensely sad as a loss to the league it's immensely sad to me and for many other fans because they've been not just there they've been entertaining they've some of the better players in the league at the moment have come through Ibar Juan Jordan who's an excellent midfielder at Sevilla. He came through Mendilibar. Mm-hmm. Brian Hill's been excellent this season. Capped for Spain. He'll be big in the coming years for me. And yeah, it was good to have Ibar there. I think it's only right that Real Madrid and Barcelona should be reminded of their mortality and uh, be travelling to a small town in the in the valleys of the Basque Mountains in this tiny ground and being made to to sort of deal with those harsher conditions and not such a pampered lifestyle. I was trying to think of a better metaphor, but I'm going to make this sort of comparison to sort of the, the end of a funeral when sort of <laughs> the after party of a funeral, when you, it's, it's obviously very sad, but you also kind of want to celebrate the fact that they were there. And, I'd, and I've been uh, maybe a little downtrodden about this, but yeah, I'd like to celebrate the fact that they were there and hopefully they will be back. There was, there was certainly some <laughs> desolation on Sunday when they were, the result was confirmed and Kike Garcia, their sort of leader up front, was in tears. It was pretty hard to watch. I hope they will be back because they are very well run. Mendilibar, the manager, looks like he's probably going to take a year off. And Fran mm-hmm. Garagatha, who's their sporting director, has been very good and deserves enormous credit as well. He looks he's also off. So their next appointments will be will be very key. I was going to say, don't Cry because it's over, but I will smile because I bar. <laughs> it's hard to follow up from that, but by the time we speak next, Villarreal may well have secured their first ever major trophy. How do we rate their chances against Manchester United in the Europa League final? I think they have to be outsiders. I mean, if you look at the imbalance in squads again, if referring to sort of finances, it's kind of ridiculous when you see. Edinson Cavani scored the, the chipped goal that he did score very recently. Absolute golazo. And he's not even a guaranteed starter for Man United. So although Carlos Baca did score a hat-trick at the weekend, um, and he's also not a guaranteed starter, but not quite the same. I'd give them about a 40% chance of doing it. 
where they can make gains on Manchester United is that this game is absolutely massive for them. It's huge for both Villarreal and I think Gunai Emery probably is very invested in this too, more so than any other manager would be at this stage. And so they, it will matter more to them. And obviously you get an extra bit of fight from that. I think they need to be miserly in defence and sharp up front, which is very cliched. But I think that's where, if they do pass up opportunities or concede any easy chances, that's where they will be punished. There was a stage sort of in that Arsenal game where it looked like they might run away with it in the first leg. And they had, a at the end of the sort of evening, Manu Trigueros, who'd scored, was like, there. there's a sensation that we've let them out, out of here alive when we could have killed them off. That can't happen against Manchester United. They need to kill Manchester United dead if they can and when they have the chance. So they can't make the same mistakes that they did against Arsenal. Man United will benefit from space. And I think one advantage or one positive for them is that Unai Emery is very good at killing space for the opposition. Mm-hmm. Certainly, sort of harking back to that Sevilla-Liverpool Europa League final, Unai Emery was very good at... at Liverpool were by far the favourites for that game. And Sevilla did a real job on them. Mario Gaspar is the big weakness. It doesn't look like Juan Foyt will make it at right back. That's where Manchester United will look to exploit them. On the other hand, Gerard Moreno, I've spoken about him a lot. He will be key for them. And I think Danny Parejo, for me, will play a huge role in this because when Villarreal do get the ball back, he has that pausa, as they say in Spain, to take the ball, take a moment, calm things down and keep the ball. And I think... He, his sort of experience and composure will be key in leading Villarreal against Manchester United. Thanks, Barlow. Excellent and succinct and insightful. As always, next stop, Italy with Michael Jones. Wednesday night's Coppa Italia final for many symbolised a clash between everything that is right and everything that is wrong with modern day football. In one corner, we had Atalanta, a club we have waxed lyrical about on this podcast for their club ethos, sustainability and raw excitement. In the other corner, we had big bad Juventus, the monopolising bullies of Italian football run by a man determined to single-handedly or along with some other figures destroy the game we love. And yet there was some serenity to the old ladies' cup victory and what was Gigi Buffon's last dance. It was a fitting victory for an eternal legend of the game, wasn't it, Michael? Yeah, it was. You've built it sort of what I expect Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua to be like. But um, yeah, a 25th trophy for Buffon, equaling him with another legend of Italian football and world football. Paying Paolo Maldini and both of the last trophies were in their 40s which is another amazing achievement and although Juventus play this weekend uh, you know which I'm sure will come on to given the drama that involves uh, he, he will not be featuring it will be Chesney who will be expected to start so he's you know since returning for his much shorter second spell in 2019 he has been predominantly used as this cup keeper, but if that suggests that his impact has been superficial, you'd be really wrong. Across the two seasons in the league, he's had 17 league appearances, nine last season, and was played some really important games when 
Juventus did manage to win the Serie A title, especially when Chesney had his wobbles. And, you know, this Coppa Italia this season, and these two have come with a much weaker Juventus side than many that he's played with over the years. I think it is time to just give a bit of a tribute on this podcast to Buffon whilst he is still playing, because this is a guy who made his debut just two months after I was born. He spent mm-hmm. six years with Parma. Mm-hmm in the 90s and the early noughties helping them to both continental and domestic honors and then you know once he joined Juventus in 2001 he won he won 10 league titles to this day and it will be that to finish off with numerous Coppa Italias and a World Cup to boost and let's not forget he also stayed through the Calcio Poli scandal so you know, in the past month, it's been, it's, it's been such a fitting end for Buffon's career at Juventus. In the past month, he's become their record appearance maker. He's in By doing that, he also became Serie A's record appearance maker. And of course, winning this 25th honour in a game where Juventus, you know, in what's been such a disappointing, underwhelming season, there's still, this is still a huge week and they've still got loads to play for. And in this game against Atalanta, you know, this was the first of their two cup finals, really, but this was their literal cup final. And they got everything, they got the big decisions right, really, Perlo. And they played with they played in a way we just hadn't seen them do all season. And it was just a reminder to everybody who thought Juventus may be done and dusted and who may think that Juventus are on the decline, that that might not just be the case so strictly as we know it. It's interesting for where Buffon will be going forwards, where the Ventus are not in the Champions League next season. But I think Pirlo has the full backing of his former teammates. He suspects he'll be in a non-playing role at Serie A, uh, just as Maldini is for Milan. On Tuesday night, a resilient and admittedly slightly fortunate Torino earned a point against Simone Inzaghi's Lazio to consign his older brother Pipo Inzaghi's team to the drop. Benevento had hardly been in the relegation zone all season, but they were not able to stop the late onset rot, amassing a meagre three points out of the previous nine games. The last of those points was earned in a heartbreaking draw with Crotone last Sunday, a result which consigned them to Serie B. Looking at those two teams, and Parma, who are also relegated, which do you think is best equipped to make an immediate return to Serie A next season? If you look at the table, Benevento have had the best season out of the three, and by that, by default, you can make a case that they would be the best fit. But it rarely is that simple as you've seen, like, I don't know, maybe in England last season when you've seen Norwich make an immediate return after being, you know, miles miles off the pace last season in the Premier League. Coming back to Italy and Benevento, they had that crushing result for them, which looking at it through, let's say, a shoddy magnifying glass has kind of reflected their season. They started the game really well, just as the season started really well, and they took the lead against Crotone and Benevento, and then they conceded at the last minute, which all but took relegation out of their hands and put it into Torino for Tuesday's game against Lazio and it was a draw with Torino and Lazio like you said which has made what would have been such an exciting final day fixture between Benevento and Torino really intriguing but coming back to Benevento season they made this really positive start looking to banish the demons of their previous Serie A experience in 2018 where they 
where when they broke records all for the wrong reasons between the end of November and the beginning of January they went through a phase of nine games where they lost two of them but like we discussed on the last episode when we looked at Benevento quickly falling into this awful run they failed to beat the teams above them in the league and that meant the possibility of this was always going to be likely and you could even say inevitable because they didn't play the teams around them Crotone, Torino and Cagliari until the last four games of the season with Torino on the last day and defeats to Cagliari and the draw against Crotone which is basically it was basically a huge defeat for them means that this last game has become a bit of a procession and they just won't be involved in Serie A next season and it'll be interesting to see sort of when you're asking about how these three teams will fare how each will get on Benevento under Pippo Enzaghi you do hope he stays there but he might receive offers from Serie A partly because of the job he's done he really they were playing really exciting football when they came up from Serie B last season um, but obviously with the profile that Inzaghi's got it does make him quite you know a, quite an attractive prospect for a, a team maybe mid-table in Serie A looking for a younger manager but if Benevento as we looked at maybe Norwich earlier if they can look to keep Inzaghi he could be the man to take them down just as Daniel Farker did with Norwich and take them back up I think looking at Palmer they decided to kind of feng shui their squad in January after a huge drop-off they they also brought back in Roberto Diversa but it's a team of full of talented youngsters and probably the best and most exciting start in 11 when you look at the Romanian forwards they've got like Mihaila and Mann and then they've got Kirksey they've, they've got talent all over the pitch but some of these youngsters they signed were so promising you do worry as to whether they can actually keep them in Serie B because I think a lot of these players will be far too good for Serie B even though they've not proved themselves at Serie A but they should be given the chances in maybe more functional teams. So what state they'll be in will be interesting to see. And then you look at Crotona, and they're by far the weakest squad, although they look like they're going to pit Palmer to 19 spot, um, thanks to a bit of good form lately. And that's because of their manager, Cersei Cosme, who I've said um, previously, you know, just, just Google him, look at his touchline antics, look at his demeanor look at what he wears because he is one of the most interesting managers in terms of his dress sense in the whole of Europe and he's actually done a good job you know looking away from that and looking at what they've done they've picked up some really good results under him and I think Crotona will be in a good place they for the squad they've got I don't think they're just going to plummet down Serie B I think they will be contenders in the top eight or seven so I think there's reason to be positive about each of them but I'd probably say out of all of them, maybe Benevento, if they keep Pippo and Zaghi, if not Crotona, I'm quite worried for Palmer at the moment. Oh, time that just harken back to your first answer there that Pirlo did get some decisions right. Sorry, that's by the by. But we have relegation confirmed, as are the champions Inter. But that does not take away take anything away from an enticing final day in Italy's top flight. This Sunday, there are several permutations that can see two out of AC Milan, Napoli and Juventus qualify for the Champions League. Michael, how do you expect this one to pan out? Yeah, it's really exciting. I mean, just looking at the table really quick, you've got Atalanta in second on 78 points, AC Milan third, 76 points, Napoli fourth, 76 points, and Juventus fifth on 75. But even though Napoli have a better goal difference and AC Milan, it goes down to head-to-head in Serie A and that is why Atalanta cannot 
drop out of the top four because they're three points ahead of Juventus and have a better head-to-head. So that leaves us with Milan, Napoli and Juventus in what should be a thrilling final day. Partly because AC Milan, starting with them, they come up against Atalanta and AC Milan's record against the big teams in the second half of the season has not been great. Although they recently picked up a really big victory over Juventus and spirits may be a bit high but they had the chance to secure it last weekend and they didn't they drew nil nil with Cagliari if they won that that would have also secured their spot in the top four again because of that superior head-to-head with Juventus so AC Milan can only guarantee their spot with a win unless they want to rely on other teams' results but what they have to hope for yes there's disappointment with the Cagliari game but since then Atalanta had this huge cup final for them, which they lost. They got everything wrong, really, against Juventus in midweek and at a time when Atalanta had been on excellent form. And I think before that, it was really people weren't optimistic. But now you just think, will Atalanta last day of the season, top four secured, cup final defeat, will the players and uh, Toloi suspended, will the players just not be in the right headspace? And that could be a big factor as to you know, whether Milan really wanted it, I think they can get the win. And then we look at Napoli. Napoli play Alas Verona, a manager who I've discussed a lot in Ivan Juric. They're a really tough outfit. They're 10th in the league. They're safe from relegation. And Napoli have really improved under Gattuso in the second half of the season. His job looked to be on the line in February, but they've rallied on really well. And I do expect a team with four wins in the past five, I do think they'll be able to get through. So it then leaves Juventus and Juventus have Bologna. And for all the good things I said about Juventus, you know, this is a week of two cup finals. I think there's a lot of confidence they'll take into the Bologna game. But Juventus's season has been dominated by inconsistency. It's been dominated by constant tinkering, partly by Pirlo, partly forced on him due to injuries. And I just think that might play against Juventus. I still think they'll be favourites to beat Bologna. But It'll be a tough game. Bologna, a tough outfit. Likes of Orsolini up top, Barrow, who we've discussed before as well. And I'm sure there'll be, the if any team's going to be coming up against another team in the league on this final day, I think the temptation might be for teams, especially with Agnelli's role in the Super League, that teams will just give it that extra bit against Juventus to try and stop them getting into the top four. And I do think that that actually could be a big factor. And I think... Depending what Atalanta side turn on, I, I think Atalanta at the best beat AC Milan, but I don't think they will be. And I think AC Milan will be able to get the win on the final day and what would be so dramatic. But if not, I'm going to stick with the top four we've got for now and say Juventus actually miss out. Interesting. Michael, plenty still to play for. Thank you. We will take a short break now before returning to discuss what is set to happen and what has just happened in Germany. We'll be right back. In Germany, the relegation battle will go down to the final day with DSC Arminia Bielefeld, Werder Bremen and FC Köln looking to salvage their top flight status. Two points separate those three sides with Köln in the automatic relegation place and Werder Bremen currently occupying the relegation playoff spot. To make matters even spicier, Bremen decided last Sunday to part ways with young coach Florian Kofeldt and place club legend Thomas Schaaf in charge for a crucial match-safe 34 tie with Gladbach. Given how poorly de Grunweissen have been lately, is there an argument to be made that Kofeldt 
while still highly rated by some, should have been dismissed before now. Absolutely, Barlow. I think he should have been dismissed long before now. He was appointed in November 2017, Florian Kofeld, to replace Alexander Nuri, and the early days were really quite positive for Florian Kofeld and Werder Bremen in the 2017-2018 season. He guided them to 11th place. Now, they had been in 17th place when he took over in November 2017. They were really struggling. He then did even better the following season. They finished in 8th place in the 2018-2019 season. And at the time, he was regarded as one of the best coaches or one of the best young coaches, anyway, in the country. He was really highly regarded and his success or relative success was was recognised. But then things started to turn a little bit sour. 2019-2020 season, they finished 16th and they needed that nervy relegation playoff to secure their Bundesliga status for this season. And this season, they're currently sitting in 16th place in the relegation playoff. So it has gone from really quite good to really quite negative for Florian Kofeld and Werder Bremen. I'm just going to speak a little bit about Kofeld's time in charge generally. He's actually, or he was, the third consecutive reserve coach to, to be promoted to the seniors at Werder Bremen after Nuri and Victor Skripnik. I think that suggests a, a pattern or a culture of sorts at Werder Bremen, which is worth noting. And in the early days, that appointment looked to have paid off. They were attacking bravely. They were brilliant at home and they really got the most out of our good friend, Max Klauser. Now, when Klauser left at the end of the 2018-2019 season, Werder's fortunes, Werder Bremen's fortunes took a turn for the worst and I've just put in capital letters in my notes, no Klauser, no party. He was their captain, he was their heart and I think the Bundesliga website described him as the linchpin of Werder Bremen's attack under Florian Kofeld, and I think that sums it up quite accurately. Kofeld himself was arguably the embodiment of renewed hope at the Vesa Stadion. He had taken over a team which had, in the 2000s, been winning the Bundesliga. It had won the Bundesliga. It was regularly finishing in the top three in those 2000s under Thomas Schaff. They had qualified for Europe on, on several occasions, and they went from that glory that high or that sustained good time to struggling in, I saw one outlet describing it as no man's land in recent years. They were really struggling in the wrong half of the Bundesliga. And I think Kofeld, certainly in the early days, provided them with hope again. And the decision to part ways with Kofeld was a difficult one. It feels like one of those relationships that both parties know they should probably break up and they should have broken up long before now but that doesn't make the breakup any easier. Kofit was charismatic, he was a really positive figure but in the end he had to go and he should have been gone long before now. I spoke about the contrast between the early days under Kofit and the later days under Kofit and I'm just going to focus on them a little bit more. In the early days um, there's a really good article actually on where it went wrong for Kofeld and Werder Bremen on the Total Football Analysis website, so do go and check that out. And that article highlights how in Kofeld's first season and a half or so at the Vesa Stadion, 
Werder Bremen were bold and attractive. They played a high-pressing system. They were regularly engaging in sophisticated build-up play and they made really productive use of quick combinations. Fast forward to the latter stages of Kofeld's time in charge of Werder Bremen. They were really struggling to create quality chances. They were struggling to score goals as a result. I mean, you combine poor finishing with poor build-up play, poor move construction, it's inevitable that you will struggle. They often drop too deep as well. This was a pattern that developed under Kofeld at, at the Vesa Stadion. They were searching for this right approach. They wanted to be more defensive as time went on, but they really struggled to find the right balance between defensive stability and attacking effectively in transition. I think I was speaking to Byron Hutchison from Pure Football about this, and he made the point that Kofield, you could see Kofield had some really nice ideas, but ultimately he didn't have the answers when they were needed tactically, and he really struggled to get a tune out of this Werder Bremen team. I think as well, we've questioned Kofeld's ability tactically as, as a manager, certainly in the latter stages, but we need to also call into question Frank Bauman's loyalty in Kofeld. Frank Bauman is the sporting director at Werder Bremen, and I've said it already, I think they should have dismissed Kofeld much earlier. There was also poor squad management. The recruitment certainly left a lot to be desired, so Frank Bauman isn't without blame either. Some young and internal appointments work well. Klopp, Tugel, Nagelsmann, and others like Nuri, like Sandro Schwartz, like Andre Schubert, don't. DW made that point in an article about coaches generally in the Bundesliga, and I think Kofeld falls into that latter category of young and internal appointments who are ambitious, yes, but ultimately do not succeed. Looking forward, the appointment of Thomas Schaaf does seem a little bit like sending out the bat signal. I probably won't be the first person to say that, and I certainly won't be the last person to say that. But it does stink of desperation. Thomas Schaff has just about won it all with Werder, whether as a player or as a coach. He was at the helm during that glorious period in the club's history in the 2000s that I spoke about. And I think if he can somehow secure the necessary win for Werder Bremen against Gladbach at the weekend, or if he can somehow navigate the playoffs, if that is necessary, then he will do nothing but further cement his legendary status at the Weser Stadion. Elsewhere in the relegation battle, match day 34 sees Köln host already relegated Schalke, while Bielefeld travel to Stuttgart side still in the hunt for European football. How do you rate both sides' chances, Ali? I think it's difficult to call, and I know by saying that I am sitting on the proverbial fence, but listen, the games on match day 34 are all really difficult to call. You've obviously got Werder Bremen up against Gladbach. You've got Köln hosting an already relegated Schalke, and you've got Bielefeld travelling to Stuttgart, a Stuttgart team who I've been really impressed with, despite dips at certain points in the season, I've been really impressed with. And as you say, Michael, they're still in the hunt for European football. I'm going to start with Bielefeld, 15th at the moment on 32 points. So they're currently safe as things stand. But that game against Stuttgart is such a difficult one for them, a really difficult proposition. But if they are to 
achieve the positive result that they need to secure their own safety. I think a lot of that will be down to goalkeeper Stefan Ortega. The 28-year-old has been brilliant for Aminia Bielefeld this season. He will have a huge role to play if they are indeed to stay up. I think over the course of the season as well, he's probably been arguably their most important player. He's faced more shots than any other keeper in the league and he saved over 70% of those shots. Only Jan Sommer at Gladbach can boast a higher save percentage. So if they do stay up, I think Stefan Ortega deserves immense credit. He was superb in the recent draw against Hoffenheim as well. Elsewhere, Ritsu Doan, 22-year-old Japanese winger. He plays on the right side of what has typically been a 4-3-3 in recent weeks. He's fifth for number of players dribbled past in the league this season and fourth for fouls drawn. He's also eighth for carries into the final third. I think Ortega and Goals and Ritsu Doan in the final third will have key roles to play if Arminia Bielefeld are to go to Stuttgart and obtain a positive result. Kung now big, big game for them against Schalke at the Rhein Energy Stadion. Even if they do win, it might not be enough to preserve their Bundesliga status. They've been poor for the majority of the season, and yet they've had plenty of opportunities to pull themselves away from that relegation zone. I suppose the only hope for them is that they do face an already relegated Schalke at home on match day. 34. Um, Schalke did record a pulsating 4-3 win over Frankfurt, but that was an outlier in their season. We've extensively documented their struggles and the reason for those struggles. So you have to say that Köln really should be winning that game and hoping that other results go their way. Just 30 points amassed so far. They are in 17th and they've only recorded consecutive wins on two occasions this season. That lack of consistency could prove costly. If they are to stay up, I've highlighted who the key players are for Minia Bielefeld, and at Köln, I think the key player will be Andres Duda. Five goals in his last eight, he's given them at least a chance of staying up. He's in the 94th percentile in the top five leagues for progressive passes. Quite a versatile player in the final third. He can play in the attacking midfield role, or he can play on the left or on the right of that central midfield and what can be either a 4-1-4-1 formation or a 4-2-3-1. And that versatility reflects his general importance for Kjell. If he can produce the goods, then I think Kjell should be able to get the necessary win against Schalke and hope that the other results go their way. Rudy Barlow and Michael Jones, that was another thoroughly enjoyable Episodes. I'm going to go and catch the remainder of Kilmarnock's first leg playoff with Dundee. Please say a little prayer for me because it's not looking too good right now. Thank you, Michael Jones. Thank you, Rudy Barlow. And thank you to you, the listener. Until next time, goodbye. (laughs) 